It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. Your home for hockey talk covering every team in the NHL. New episodes every Monday. Download at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. This is the Leaf Sky Podcast. Here's your host, Jim Taddy. Hi, everybody, and thank you, Mike Ross. Welcome to Leafs Guy, Episode 17, Season 2. Gus Katsaros from NBC Sports Edge and McKean's Hockey will be our guest. We're going to talk about the Leafs as they head into the All-Star break and their record, which is better than most people would think based on how they played. It's pretty darn good. So before we get going on that, let's pass along this bit of information. The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here in honor of the big game DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds in either team. Bet just $5 and get $280 in free bets if your team wins. A note to our American listeners, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in New York, meaning you can bet from almost one-third of the country. If Sportsbook isn't available in your area, play DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contest for Super Bowl 56. New customers get a free shot at a $1 million top prize with their first deposit. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the call to action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use the promo code THPN. Get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5. Get $280 in free bets if your team wins. The promo code is THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for complete details. All right, so we're at the All-Star break, and the story is, because it's fractured, we go back to the middle of December when the COVID shutdown happened for the Maple Leafs and a lot of the Canadian teams and some of the American teams also, then got into an altered state, returned on January 1st, missed some games, and now making them up. But the bottom line is, even though there's a bunch of blown leads and lately rallies, it sort of camouflages a pretty darn good record. So the question is, what do we make of that record? I have all the numbers in our conversation with Gus Gutzeros from NBC Sports Edge and McKean's Hockey. Okay, Gus, uh, when you go over the, the, the collection of games that start January 1st, so that's coming out of that COVID break or shutdown, if you will, uh, my records show that the Leafs are actually 9-2-1. and one. Um, Of that collection, there's a bunch of games where there's what I call, there's the two rally games against New Jersey and Detroit where they, they didn't start well and sort of reversed the trend. But then they've got those uh, those blown lead games uh, where they're actually 3-1-1. One and one. Uh, So, I mean, it's just, it's an odd collection because it's not the tidiest of collections, but to be able to say going into the all-star break that you had those cluster of games with a weird schedule and you didn't play the way you did before, but your record was nine, two, and one. How much concern can you have here? So I think that there's a few um, 
external factors that we should also take into consideration. One, um, while every team was going through their own COVID issues, the Leafs were as well. So any issues that were presented off the ice were probably present when teams were playing on the ice. Um, we don't right. really know about recovery rates and there's a little bit of a, 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 a shady kind of background noise that we don't really have a lot of, of insight on. Um, so players might have been not feeling 100%, but they're still playing through that. Um, and I think that we need to separate two issues here. One being that um, while the performance has been good, um, there's a lot of rescheduling. There's a lot of players that have, have individual issues that we um, we can't factor into winning. Right. Um, and then the blown leads. So the blown leads, I think, do have some issues with uh, um, players maybe not being 100%. Um, because if you're not feeling 100%, you're not putting yourself to be in the, in the structure required to maintain leads. So this isn't the Leafs specific phenomenon. And I know that we kind of look at it just from the, the lens of the Leafs. Like for instance, I think uh, Colorado lost to Anna, um, to Arizona just last night right. uh, off a blown lead and late in the game. Good teams will blow leads. It's a matter of how they recover. And if te- and Toronto's kind of pulled their ass out of a hat um, on a few occasions right. from January the 1st, um, and they've been able to just kind of salvage a point or salvage a win through that. Um, I don't think the issue is specifically about the blown lead. I think that the underlying problem is bad defense and goaltending that's plagued them since prior to the year. So we're looking at, you know, the great performance of uh, of uh, Jack Campbell leading up to maybe, let's say, the beginning of December. And right. then things are starting to fall apart. Yeah. Um, those little symptoms are what's kind of created the Leafs to lose these 3-1 leads and 4-1 leads and whatever the case is. So they're rallying to be able to kind of come up with a win, and there's some character-building influence in that. Um, but I think that the blown leads specifically kind of tend to a lot of the COVID issues um, and a lot of the defensive impact that hasn't been prevalent in Toronto's game for the last month or so. Yeah, and so just to back up what you say, I have my schedule in front of me. I'm looking at Wednesday, December 1st, 8-3, they win in Colorado. Uh, Saturday, December 4th, they lose in a shootout in Minnesota, 4-3. They go on to Winnipeg the next night, lose 6-3, win in Columbus, 5-4, lose to Tampa, 5-3, win in Chicago, 5-4, and beat Edmonton, 5-1. And the Edmonton, 5-1 win is sort of makes you think that everything's correct, but then they go into the COVID shutdown. But there are some numbers in those losses and wins that I said right there that that don't match what preceded it. They were very, very tight defensively. So the wobble starts right there. You, you are correct. And at the same time, too, now we're seeing different elements of the defensive game starting to fall apart as players are starting to be removed from the lineup. You take Jake Muzzin out of the lineup and then it's a completely different defense. You now have to rejig everything. And it's nice to see that Timothy Limmigrant uh, um, has stepped up. It's a good problem to solve there during the year. Sandine has stepped up as well too. Uh, but Hall has struggled immensely this year. Jake Muzzin is not there to um, cover up for all of Hall's mistakes. They need to be able to work as a genuine second pairing partnership. And if they can't, then you see results like we've seen in the uh, in the last couple of months. You see blown leads, you see blown coverage, which makes Jack Campbell and whoever is in net um, forced to make extra plays or more daring saves. Um, and there's an effect to all of that. So I think that as as well as we've kind of seen Toronto play defensively, and they can possibly get back to that level with a healthy, fully uh, committed lineup, 
um, there are definite sidebar issues um, that are starting to creep into the game. And management has to be very aware that if goaltending starts to falter, as it has over the last couple of months, they're going to have to either change some strategical tactics um, to make sure that they can kind of keep up with that, or they're going to have to bring in somebody else to on, the, on the blue line because they're just not cutting it at this point. Yeah, so you opened a lot of doors. I'm going to go back again with my schedule to November 16th. 3 nothing win over Nashville. 2 nothing, 2-1 win, sorry, over the New York Rangers. 2 nothing loss in Pittsburgh. 3 nothing win over the Islanders. 6-2 over the LA Kings. 4-1 over San Jose. 5-1 over Anaheim. And that leads into that stretch that starts the, the Colorado 8-3, the Minnesota loss, and the Winnipeg loss. So those are the numbers. That that was the high point of well, when you're talking about chemistry, on-ice chemistry, uh, defensive zone coverage, good goaltending. I mean, it all meshed together there. It started to wobble. But the interesting thing is, even though it wobbled going into the, the COVID break and coming out of the COVID break, the record is still pretty darn good, which is kind of masking a problem yeah so that uh, the record is all that really matters at this point i mean when we're looking at playoff structure and where toronto is at this point in time um we're not really talking about the defensive issues we're not talking about the goaltending problems or any wobbling it it's a, we're talking about who are the leafs going to face in the first round right. so until they get a better handle and again, coming out of the COVID issues, and 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 this is league-wide, it's not just limited to Toronto, but they need to be able to establish that base lineup that they're going to use moving forward. They're going to have to limit some of Jack Campbell's time because I think that that also played a presence early in the season. You gave me the ball, and now I just kind of ran with it. Um, under good, proper structure, that's the key point. Yes. When the structure started to falter, so did Jack Campbell. So now we need to see, is Campbell really the Vezina-type goaltender that we saw in October, November, leading into December? Or does he need to have a little bit of work taken by Peter Mrazek, who has to step up more so than he has lately, in order for Toronto to have some semblance to say our goaltending is tight enough um, that we can confidently go into the playoffs with that? And if not... How are they going to compensate with that? And that's kind of where the idea of bringing in a potential other defender comes into play. Um, so the results are good. And obviously, this is a result-oriented um, league. Toronto has shown, too, that they can kind of get behind. We saw the Detroit game. We kind of saw the Devils game a couple nights ago. And that, forget the the 7-1 the, uh, the blowout um, yeah. just last night. But you could see that they could score goals in bunches, and they can be lethally deadly when they don't have the lead because they can kind of score at will, but they have to shore up that defensive game. And that begins in the crease. And then all those other questions start to get answered on the blue line. Yeah. I mean, you could see the, uh, in the, uh, the, the moments that you're not happy with, you could see the, just the lack of attention to detail there. And the goaltending was soft. Um, so there's a couple of things that come out of this. Um, it appears to me that the second league pairing on their blue line, uh, regardless of who it is, comes under scrutiny uh, for different reasons. Now, Muzzin and Hall, we've talked about quite a bit, and uh, just not convinced that that's the pairing that should be there. Now, when I say that, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus here. I may have in the past, but I just think it's it's the chemistry of the pairing. Like I, I still believe that Muzzin should be on that pairing. I don't know where Hall plays, but together I don't see them as, as the three, four guys on this team. Now, I don't know who the replacement is. It's easy to, to point out what's not working. The solution is, is a little harder to find. Uh, and, and when it's uh, Sandine and Lilligren, it's a future look. I mean, obviously, one or both of them 
at some point will be the second pairing, and they can in spots this year. It's just not going to be sustainable in a playoff run. So, I mean, it, again, it's easy to say it doesn't really work. I don't know what the solution is because it's very hard to find that guy who fits perfectly because you're talking about not only what the guy brings to the table, but how he meshes with the partner. Not easily done. Last year, I kind of felt, I, it's not just last year. I think that um, while, while Justin Hall has shown some semblance of being a decent NHL defenseman, he is absolutely not a second pairing defenseman. Toronto has fit him into that slot simply because of the salary. And based on how they've had to manage the cap, including all the stuff that we've already talked about from the expansion draft, you know, protecting him over a player like McCann, et cetera, et cetera, um, that's his spot. So unfortunately, until or unless they find a solution to actually remove him off that line, um, I think that you're going to see a Muzzin Hall pairing, and that's going to be the permanent second pairing. Now, having said that, Lilligren should really be the player in that spot, but at the same time, too, to your point, being green, not having the type of experience that you'd probably like to have on the second pairing, and him being a, a bit more of a foundation with Sandine for a future look, um, it causes enough problems. So an unhealthy Muzzin is a problem. So you yes. need to make sure that he gets healthy right off the bat. An unhealthy or even a healthy Muslim that has to cons consistently cover up for an underperforming Justin Hall is a liability in itself. So Toronto has to assess whether or not that second pairing can still be used in its current structure. And if not, do you move somebody internally? Do you move somebody perhaps like... I'm just going to throw out a name like Jacob Chikrin. Do you try to make a run for him and try to bring him into the fold to put him into a position where they can solidify four proper top four defenders? Uh, there's questions that I think Toronto has to kind of go into the trade deadline with um, that still have yet to be answered. Um, and I think that Muzzin's health is really the driver of all of that. Hall is the necessity on that second line. He's not the perfect player. But when you've pigeon, when you've you've kind of shoehorned yourself into this type of a roster, and you have really very little room to kind of create anything because you don't have enough cap space to be able to bring in a player, um, sometimes you have to kind of work within your defaults. And Toronto has to figure out if that's going to be their default, and it's fine if it is. They're going to have to figure out some strategical element um, to alleviate some of the pressure from that second pairing and to help out their goaltending overall. Okay, so let's do a bit of a CSI on this, just because we talk about it a lot. So I'm going to throw some stuff out there, and, and uh, just correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, when I think of Jake Muzzin, I, I see a, a viable top-four defenseman now uh, fading down to a, a, a bottom-pairing defenseman. Obviously has the physical attributes the Leafs need, has offensive upside. Uh, I, I think needs a partner who, who can cover some ice to, so he doesn't get stretched. I think if, if you had the right partner for him, and I'm thinking of, you know, not a direct comparison, but when Lidstrom was paired with whoever, it didn't really matter who the whoever was because Lidstrom was going to cover 80% of the ice. That other guy had to have the offensive read because Nick was going to take care of everything. Jake will take care of the physical stuff. He has offensive upside, but I think you need somebody more of a, uh, who's going to cover some ice to make him look better. Uh, and, and Chikrin might be the guy. Why the Coyotes would want to trade him is beyond me, but but might be the guy. What do you think? Well, when we start doing Coyotes podcasts, we'll talk about more about <laughs> why they make certain decisions. Well, I, well, he's a young defenseman. Why? What, what's the problem? I don't get it. He's young at a cost certainty. That's why I say that Toronto should, 
and I'm not really sure whether or not there's a viabil the viability of it, but that's a potential piece that could put them in a position where they are consistently contenders. Like we, we talk about these minor moves. So let's kind of go back to your point. Jake Muzzin is good enough on his own to be um, not just a defensive defenseman. He can move the puck. He oh, can yeah, pass he it out. He, he's good in the offensive zone. There are a lot more um, um, elements to Jake Muzzin's game than just being a good defenseman. Having said that, um, Justin Hall is not the player that should be there. Now, your your example of Lidstrom and whoever, um, in today's game, I think that with more sophisticated video, much better numbers and analysis coming out of those numbers, players can kind of take Muzzin's effect away by kind of targeting Justin Hall. So anybody on Muzzin's pairing that is not at that same level can be targeted so that they can remove some of the effect from Muzzin. And I think that that's kind of what's happened a lot more over the last, it's not just this season. I'd say even beginning towards the middle of last season, even though last season was a bit short, um, teams are starting to understand. We don't need to attack Muzzin. We can kind of take him out of the equation and just concentrate on his partner. And if Justin Hall is that partner, while he does have some decent mobility, he has a good shot. I kind of use the Brian McCabe uh, example where it's just a, a potential slap shot, not nothing else really. Um, he makes very, very like strange mistakes within the defensive zone that can't be kind of covered by a defensive pairing. Now you have to strategically change their formation in the zone. It causes holes. Um, there, there's there's fundamental issues with anybody that goes onto Muzzin's pairing because of the sophistication of analysis and research that's coming out of teams looking to play Toronto. So you could do that on a one-off because games are different in the regular season. But right. when you start getting into playoff series and you know that you can consistently target Jake Muzzin's defensive partner and get good results out of it, teams are going to continue to do that. Okay, so let me flip that around because I, I, I agree with what you say. I, I still think that that pairing's a target no matter what the configuration is. And, and I think that for all Jake Muzzin's pluses, and he has a lot of them, I, I think that you know there, there's, um, there's a lack of agility uh, and and maybe foot speed on, on the first couple of steps. Um, and so if I'm playing against that that tandem, I'm going to either exploit Hall for other reasons or I'm going to funnel everything down the boards on Muzzin or try to go around him. So I, I think that Muzzin's the guy you keep, but but I think you need the partner has to be able to, to cover a lot of ice. It has to be an outlet for him. So all defensemen are no longer offensive and defensive pairings. That That's not how it works anymore. Both defensemen need to be able to either jump into the rush, hit four at the blue line if that's the case. Um, they need to support more offensive uh, creativity. Um, so anybody that they do bring in has to kind of tick all those boxes. Hall ticked those boxes somewhat um, when they first kind of brought him into the league. Um, he outperformed his expectations, so they kind of bumped him up. Um, and again, putting him in the position where they are now is more about a salary cap issue rather than right. um, skill. So there's always going to be some kind of a, a hole on that pairing just based on the fact that they can't fill it with somebody who's got a similar enough skill set, but more so because of the economics of the situation. So I don't think that they're going to find a, an upgrade um, unless they do some maneuvering and, and kind of figure some certain things out. 
Um, perhaps as players kind of start to drop off, Alex Kerfoot is a UFA at the end of the season. Who knows what they do going into next season? But going into the playoffs this year, they have to strategically change the way that they do things on that second pairing. Otherwise, teams are just going to consistently target whoever is that partner on Muzzin's end. Um, and if Muzzin isn't 100% healthy, and this is probably the key element here, he won't be able to cover any mistakes from his partner. And while he was doing a decent job of that a couple of seasons ago and, and, and teams really weren't targeting his partner, it's a lot more um, prevalent now. Um, and they have to find a solution for that internally because I just don't think that a personnel um, change is going to make any difference here. Okay, so so let me ask you again. When I said about Muzzin, do you agree with that? I think so. I think for the most part, Muzzin is a bit uh, of a of an anomaly. People think that he's just a strict defensive defenseman, and I don't really think that that's the case. But his deficiencies are easily targeted by other teams, and that's the point where I think that we yeah. both agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 an interesting problem to have, uh, and and uh, I think it's an exploitable one uh, that sort of sticks out for me. Now, what those things that you're talking about, um, how you would fix that? I mean, that really describes. Sandine and Lilligren's pairing, but they're just not ready. Yeah. So I actually think that they are ready. I think that yeah. they're ready to step up to a, a, a different level of expectation. Um, whether I'm right or wrong, we'll probably end up seeing that. But if, for for instance, if for some reason Muzzin is still not 100%, somebody has to step into that void, it's going to be those two players. And Lilligren being the player that he's emerged to be this season gives me a little bit more confidence that they can be more competent at that. Remember, when they're playing in that second pairing, probably not going to face the most uh, – offensively dangerous line from the other team on a consistent basis. So it's not like they're facing the Crosbys and the McDavid's on a consistent basis. They're probably facing second and third lines uh, throughout the league. So it's just a matter of maintenance. Um, they are both much more offensively gifted and oriented and, and much more mobile than both Muzzin and Hall and any other defenseman aside from uh, uh, the Riley and Brody pairing, which we're not going to have to discuss on that. Yeah. Um, so I think that it adds a different element. So if they are able to jump into that second pairing and bring a different type of game than teams are expecting because their expectations were to get Muzzin and Hall in that slot, you know, now it throws a wrench into the strategic uh, capacity of the opposition and they have to figure out a solution to kind of get through that. Okay. So as you were describing the pairing, I thought back to, and I remember this well, January 19th, Madison Square Garden, New York City. Defensive zone, Leaf defensive zone faceoff, and Sandina Lilligren watch Kreider park himself off the faceoff. And I looked at that and went, oh, so, I mean, obviously, neither defenseman knew where to go. Uh, nobody told them where to go. There was no coaching there. And the centerman didn't turn around and reposition them. Now, I, I brought that up with somebody and said it wouldn't be the centerman. I have seen games where the centerman is in the dot and he turns to his defenseman and, and moves him over. In an offensive situation, I don't see why it wouldn't happen defensively either. That was a complete miscue uh, on on their part, but I don't blame the two guys. I, I blame the staff for not prepping them for that situation. So now that they have a distinct proof that this is what happened, and now you have to play this in a certain way, um, all those little teachable moments, and they've had lots of those teachable moments throughout the season. That one is a good one, but there's lots yeah. that we can go from earlier in the season as well. Yeah. Those elements have to be pointed out by the, by coaching staff and get the players prepared as they go down the stretch and into the playoffs. So 
that those are distinct mistakes. But mistakes are usually coachable moments. And if the coaches understand that we can kind of build something from these mistakes, hopefully they're not made in the past. Um, that one in particular is a little bit tougher because I think that net front coverage has also changed somewhat over the last few seasons. Um, and they're kind of giving players a little bit more room in front of the net and trying to take away space to make passes um, because it's a lot easier to get a, a, a better shot on goal uh, by making a Royal Road pass. So Royal Road is kind of that imaginary line that divides the uh, the defensive zone. If they're able to move the, def the goaltender and everybody else from one side to the other, it opens up splots. So you give the player the net front because rebounds aren't as prevalent as they used to be. And you're trying to cover those passing lanes to make sure that your goaltender doesn't have to go post to post or you're not opening up any other scenes. So now the coaching staff, while looking at that video, is saying you probably played this okay according to the modern style of game. However, there are certain instances where you have to make judgment calls and you have to get better coverage in front of the net or get better support from your forwards. The Leafs problems over the last two or three seasons have definitely been a bit of a, a, a disconnect between the forwards and the, and the defensemen. They tightened that up in the shortened season. I thought that they did a much better job when Sheldon Keefe finally kind of took over the reins. Um, and they've just kind of been a bit more lax this season. Um, we've also kind of seen Toronto do this thing where they all kind of come back and try to break out um, um, as a five-man unit. Lately, they've started to stretch out those forwards. So now there's a little bit of a change in tactic, which kind of influences how the defense plays. So I think that while the coaching staff is recognizing those little mistakes, they are changing their tactics somewhat and experimenting a little bit, which I would really, really think is a, a, a motivational factor to, to, to try to make sure that teams aren't as predictable as they used to be. Um, and I think that in the end, those coachable moments will effectively um, be eliminated, um, especially with young players like Willigrand and Sandine as they start to adapt themselves a lot more into NHL. Yeah, I, I brought that one up on purpose. Um, they were the uh, second pairing in that game. That was the one, as I said, at Madison Square Garden, and it was in the last five minutes of regulation. Strom had just made it 4-3, so that was a blown 3-1 lead by the Leafs on the road. Strom had made it 4-3 uh, at 10:50 at 15:33, and that face-off dot, that alignment was wrong, and it's Kreider. So, I mean, Kreider is on the ice to do one thing. That's the guy that, you know, for all those theories about leaving space and all that, whatever, with him, you, you have to be on him, and he scored the goal. And I thought that was just a, a complete miscue in, in, a, in a setup that nobody knew what to do. And, and both defensemen stayed off to the side. Kreider was alone. It cost them the game. So, you know, again, you know, it's it's a mistake, and you can assign the, the you know, the responsibility wherever you want. Uh, it's it's one mistake. They didn't have a particularly great game that night, but but you go from there. Uh, and, and so that's the issue for me. That's why I came up with the line was no matter who's in the second pairing, whether it's the kids or the older guys, there's always a problem there because it's exploitable. I think that the, you're talking a lot about coachable moments and we yeah. still don't really have a, a, a good understanding of what the coaching staff is talking to these young players about. That's right. But, but you know, in the end, if you and I can spot these items, um, obviously somebody that's a lot more in tune needs to find an action to eliminate those items. Right. Um, it, it's kind of like systems work. I think that recognizing how a team plays their systems that they use is fairly easy. Breaking those systems 
or trying to improve on them, that's a, a, a bit more of a specialty that I don't think I'm even at that point yet. Well, look, I mean, the, the, the thing about where we're sitting now is we'll, we'll tell you what happened and what should have happened, but the players and the coaching staff know exactly what the plan was and if it was executed or not. And that's that's a key missing piece in any analysis, whether you're talking about a football game, basketball game, or hockey. You, the, the ultimate question is, what was the setup? What was supposed to happen on that play? And, and was it executed? And now the other element to that, too, is if you had Muzzin and Hall on the ice, would they have actually done the same thing? Or is this a rookie mistake? Or is this something that the Leafs have tried to build into their character? There, there, there's a lot other um, intangible items that I don't think that we are able to kind of quantify um, oh. as to how they play that specific situation. But there are lots of coachable moments. There's lots of William Nylander coachable moments over the years that I've, I've kind of felt um, have dragged on specifically about him and his development. Uh, we're going to see the same thing with Lilligren, the same thing with Sandine. We're going to see the same thing with a bunch of defensemen that they're going to start bringing up from the minors um, and all those developmental leagues. We're going to consistently see these little mistakes and those I, I call them the coachable moments because they just they can be removed. It's just a matter of how they are removed, whether it's immediate or a long-term. Well, and, and you learn that. And so when you go to the team that wins it all, they don't have any coachable moments because they've been through, they've completed that process and you watch them play and you go, they don't give you anything. And, and you know, when you're talking about the, the five, six defensemen, they're playing 11 or 12 minutes of flawless hockey because they know that they, you know, exactly what to do and they do it. Yeah. There was an interesting point I think made by Daryl Belfry where uh, um, he was talking about a Nikita Kucherov and saying how Kucherov inspires the players around him to skate more, to be quicker and do things around him because of the way that he plays. I kind of attribute a little bit of that to Austin Matthews as well. So I find that when he's on the ice, um, especially with a lot of these younger defensemen, he, I'll use the word energizes, but it gives them the ability to say, hey, we can do more than what we are currently doing. Um, and Matthews kind of takes the reins on that and he's able to kind of drag some of those players. So perhaps maybe one of the solutions here is to start putting some of these lower pairings onto that first line and see just how much that he can kind of inject some more enthusiasm into those players. So you're saying that they would be more in tune with what he's creating. I'd like to think that they'd be able to step up the pace to basically match the type of effort and execution that Matthews and that line is capable of. Last minute of play in this podcast. All right, Mike Ross, thanks for the time. Warning time now for Yes Guy, No Guy on the way out. Yes Guy, No Guy, happy with where the Leafs are heading into the All-Star break. Oh, Yes Guy. I know some of the games were a little erratic and there were blown leads and rallies and you know the goaltending numbers were soft, the defensive numbers were soft, but this was a fractured state. I never really get concerned about what happens from I want to say the normal Christmas break until the All-Star break. As long as you're not slumping or going into a skid, you're okay in my book. So that's a yes guy for the Leafs looking forward to what could happen in the second half or after the All-Star break. Yes guy, no guy number two. You're concerned about Jack Campbell. Oh, absolutely not, guy. No, sir. 
I know he has had some struggles, uh, rebounded nicely 7-1 over the New Jersey Devils in New Jersey to head into the All-Star break. He's going to get his legs back. He's going to be okay. We saw the high watermark for him going back to mid-November, and he's going to return to that as they head into the playoffs. And so what really has to happen now, and there's a lot of games here that will take this into consideration and actually make this happen. The Morazic part of the tandem will develop because he's going to play a lot. Jack Campbell will play a lot. We know the ceiling for Jack Campbell We'll figure out what it is for Morazic. Not at all concerned is what I'm trying to say after mumbling incessantly. Not at all concerned about Jack Campbell. Yes, guy, no guy. Need to improve the blue line. Well, maybe, guy. If you have a Stanley Cup penciled in for this team this year, I would say yes, guy. If you don't, I would say no, guy, because that missing piece is hard to find. It may come at a price you might not be willing to pay. So sitting on the fence, guy, on that one. And let's close out on this one. Yes guy, no guy, number four. The Matthews-Marner-Bunting line will have a great run into the playoffs. This is an emphatic yes guy. Or maybe I should say, are you kidding me, guy? What a great line this is. Matthews, an absolute stud on the ice. Marner finding the range now and bunting is so fascinating to watch. I mean, this guy does all kinds of little things that create plays, keep plays alive that result in goals. This line is going to be a force to be reckoned with. So we'll end on a yes guy. Thanks for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed Episode 17, Season 2 of Leaf Sky. I hope you come back next week for Episode 18.